Welcome back or welcome to the Success Times Happiness Podcast. I am Richard Thompson and today we have an amazing guest. He is cycling royalty in Australia. It is Matthew Heyman. Uh, he has had a professional career for over 20 years. He's been in 15 grand tours. He is the winner of the 2016 Paris-Roubaix uh, classic race. And um, we have the ability and the opportunity to sit down with him, talk about all things cycling, but all things mindset and how he was able to develop that to win one of the biggest races. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down with Matt, talking about cycling, about life in general, and hopefully we can get uh, some lessons out of that and that we can put into our own world. Matty Heyman, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for coming in. No problem. Um, so to kick things off, I wanted to sort of, I guess, chronologically go back a little bit. Um, you know, you spent your entire almost adult life pursuing sporting excellence and, um, I mean, spending a decade in, in with, with, with the Rabobank team yep. and then going to Sky in that starting that process and then eventually finding your home at Green Edge. Yep. When you started out, what was, how did success look for you? Like, what was the goal of it? And I guess more on a personal level, do you, you know, I imagine that there's initially a, just essentially fighting to see whether you can get a world tour contract. Mm. Once you're there, What's what's driving Matt Heyman to yeah to turn up? Yeah, I think you know you start you start riding and you, for the enjoyment of it or get into the sport anyway, um, and then yeah, it got quite serious and and then for a long time yeah that you wanted to turn professional and that was a big thing where, while I was in Australia like there weren't that many Australian riders turning professional um, and really striving for that professional contract. Um, so that's probably the first big goal. And then when you get there, it's like starting all over again and you're at the bottom of the heap and all of a sudden you're in a pool of nothing but talented athletes. You know, everybody's there because they won races mm. and there's nobody, there's no professional rider that doesn't have talent. Um, so yeah, and then there was a, probably in those first few years as a professional, there was a big recalibration of my goals, you know. I think leading into turning professional, the thoughts of winning stages in Tour de France and, you know, I was a pretty cocky young rider and that's why I thought I was, or I knew I was going to turn pro, you know. I, I, I'll go back and say I knew, it was just a matter of time. I just said that's that's what I'm going to do. Where did that self-confidence come yeah. from? Was it, is it, was it? Yeah, it got repetition? knocked out of me when I turned pro, <laughs> that's for sure. Was it repetition of exposure to that as a kid? As in, you were just that much better in development, so you only saw success, or was it just this no. undeniable, like blind faith that you'd be able to do that? I think it was a combination of both. So, so yeah, there were people around you that saying, "Oh, you're you're pretty good at that," and you know, if you're getting medals at junior world championships and and you're being selected, and you know, people are looking at your test results and saying, "Hey, you're you're not bad." Um, and maybe it was better. I didn't know how big the world was and how many other athletes were out there that, uh, you know, you come from Canberra and at the time, Michael Rogers is, you know, three times world champion, stage winner, Tour de France. We were the two 12-year-old kids riding around the bike paths of Canberra for, for many years. We were the only ones um, racing in our age division. Um, we did a lot of stuff together. So to look back that you've... That was the only real um, marker or litmus test was a guy that went on to be world champion and we ended up in the same team later. So um, even having that wasn't wasn't a deterrent. You know, one of the world's best um, was the only other guy I ever trained with um, through, through my late teens. Because um, how old were you when you did get that junior time trial? Seventeen, yeah. So that, I would have thought the belief going into that would have been just as good as, just as strong as it was going out. Yeah. So that that's look. Um, yeah. Way back then, I was lucky enough to be involved with the ACT Academy of Sport. Um, we had uh, a coach there, 
who went on to be a national coach. Um, I was training quite hard and, and got a lot of contact because it was in the ACT. Um, and, you know, it's pretty much one city. It's not like uh, a New South Wales or a, you know, it wasn't, you know, I could get a lot of contact, a lot of training advice. And the riders before me also for the Junior World Championships, both on track and road in cycling, we've been really, really successful right. at, at World Championships, more so than a lot of the traditional European countries. And I think it came, m people might even say we were probably pushed too hard, so young, um, training almost the same way that that you know young professionals or, or an, ad an adult yeah it was a toned down version of of uh the program i remember the team's pursuit um riders were pretty much their next step after junior world titles was olympic program you know yeah. so they were you know guys missing going to year 11 and 12 to go to mexico to do altitude training and doing you know 200k rides as 17 year olds so the level of of our training was pretty high and then yeah was reconfirmed i had some talent go to get a medal at a world championship um so that yeah reconfirmed it um so i think in europe the sports scene probably more like cricket and football in australia where it's just a, a rite of passage and everybody has a go mm -hmm. um but we were definitely training at a at a scientific level even as a 17 year old focusing on that event you know a, a three four month program to peak for that one event where I think the Europeans would come in, have raced last weekend in sure. their town and just rock up them. It's, uh, you know, um, and seeing this success before me, you know, it was, it was normal. The three years before me, the Australian riders had become world champion. Yeah. Right. So, so you you're in the right environment. Yeah. Yeah. And that triggered then to get, to get a ride at the Rubberbank amateur team. Mm. Um, and yeah, just still, still pretty. Yeah, everything could, you know, I'd had my run of bad luck, but um, every time I stepped up to a new level, I was able to compete at least. And then how did that change going into, from the amateur team at Rubberbank to the professional team? You sort of mentioned that like it got beaten out of you, yeah. that cockiness or that yeah. that understanding that there are, there are definitely levels of ability in a professional. Yeah, there was no more guys, you know, you know, in, in the amateur ranks, there was a lot of really amateur riders, even some ex-professionals and, and guys doing it on the weekend where, you know, myself and my team, um, the other guys in that development team were very, you know, we were pretty professional with the way we were going about our trade, even as amateurs. Um, then you get into the professional ranks and yeah, you're riding all of a sudden. Yeah. It's, it's no longer riding and racing with 16, 17 year olds. All of a sudden you're sitting at the dinner table with a a 35-year-old with three kids at home who's ridden the Tour de France five times, yeah. you know. Um, and, yeah, it was a it was a bit of a shock, um, just the the competency and the, the speed and the level of everybody, just the, you know. Um, I do remember, like, used to bump around a lot in the amateurs and everyone would be fighting for every corner. And in the professionals, there was a bit like, oh, don't, don't come too close. But yet, when the game was on, it would be almost... Um, there'd be more fighting than in the amateurs. So there was a real kind of, it's profession now, you know, yeah. don't, don't be dangerous when there's no need to be dangerous because we're all doing this for a job. Yeah. But when the chips are down and, and there's a result to be had, then it's game on. Yeah. So yeah, it was, took a little bit, you know, it was a bit like in the amateurs, you're never going to see that guy again. It doesn't matter if you ride him into the barricades. Who is he? But Alison won't remember. No, yeah. but uh, as soon as you turn professional, yeah, these these are your colleagues. You've yeah, got to work with next week. Yep, next week, got to look this guy. And if, if you start roughing people up, then... Come and you've been considered, I would imagine, oh, I would, what I can see from the outside is, uh, I mean, someone who has always brought an element of integrity and uh, I guess good nature to your to your riding and to, to the peloton, how much of that has been, was that in, as a character trait, as a, as a, um, as a value of yours, how much of that was instilled early on and how much did you go, actually that needs to, I need to develop that. Yeah. I think some of it, and I see it in my children, um, there's a real sense of black and white, what is right and what's wrong. Oh, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're, 
I see it in my oldest a lot. Um, rules are rules, and and it's uh, but polarity. Of yeah, it's, it's sometimes hard to hard to deal with. Sometimes life's not fair, and, mm-hmm. and things aren't fair, and you try making everything uh, fair and 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 abide by all the rules. Um, I could imagine that's challenging for cycling because. Well, even the unwritten rules of the peloton, you know, you just don't do that. Mm. You know, oh, I'd struggle with that. You know, like that. But even outcome, right? So you're driven by success. The teams, you, you might, you know, you spent majority of your time as as a super domestique or as as a helper mm-hmm. to help the team objective, and that so the team's success is whether or not you win a stage or whether or not you win that classic or whatever. Now, cycling is not. There's so much bad luck, or rather, there's so you need so much good luck to yeah. the right position. You you know you miss out if you're not in the right position at the right time. You miss out by a title. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that justice, yeah, or that inequity. Yeah, I think you you spend a lot of time. There, there's not just one winner of a bike race, and if there was, we we you know um, we often you know talk about you know in football there's there's one winner you know out of uh, two sides you've got a fifty percent chance, and in cycling we don't win very often. Um, so you do really need to take a lot of other positives and, and individual riders can have success and, and, and there can be on one stage, there can be a number of successes. You know, we, when I came, we were talking about the Giro d'Italia, which is on at the moment, you know, someone might get points in the King of the Mountains, someone might win the stage, someone might take time back on GC, another team might just have got exposure. So that can be five different teams that consider the stage a success, um, but only one of them went across the line first, you know, so you really have to, and we have to also be careful that we don't find success everywhere. You know, now that I'm a director, um, it's easy to find something and say, oh, we did that really well. Um, but you really can't, yeah, polish up where a bad performance too much and, and just have to, um, you know, call a spade a spade at times. How- but yeah, I'll just go back to your other question. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I do have a bit of a reputation too as a bike rider that, uh, so a lot of people see me as being pretty calm and pretty, but, uh, I have a bit of a fiery side and I know a lot of my teammates would say he's, he's fine as long as you don't push him too far across the line. So, which, um, is also something comes back from, from childhood, a bit of a a short fuse and definitely around that what is right and what is wrong. Yeah. Fairness. Um, and that's what you see in your children. Yeah, that's the for short views sure. for sure. <laughs> no, not so much the short views, but, but definitely, definitely black and white of yeah. what fairness. Explain to me what the rule is, and then I'll follow the rule. And but I don't want to see somebody else not follow the rule. With that, and that that idea that in any particular stage you could have five different teams mm-hmm. look at the success. How much for you was the importance of integrity? And those values you brought to the peloton. Sure, you you know if someone's doing disservice, mm-hmm. you're going to pull them up, or you're going to be fiery. Yeah. But how much? How important was it for you to conduct yourself in a way, in a particular way? Yeah. Throughout your career, yeah. Perspective of whether or not you're one of those five people, five teams. Yeah. Look, I think it probably was detrimental in my career many times because uh, I was probably the first guy to say, you know, that's, that's what needs to be done. And I'll muck in and start with the hard work, you know, um, that do you mean it's to the detriment of your career? Oh, I think, uh, there could have been times that I could have looked the other way or, or, or not really taken on board the team goal and just done what was best for, for me, but I've been very much team player. Um, so I've always thought, okay, what's in the best interest of the team and, and conducted myself in that way. Um, yeah, uh, there are times when you could just, um, you know, not quite listen to the instructions or or, f- or find a way or, or do something yourself. And but almost to the point that I was maybe over committing in that area, you know, not willing to risk to go deeper into a final and just get my job done and do some work and seem to be doing a good job and and get out of there. And yeah, you know, something I talked about with Steve Peters when I was at at Sky about, you know, that maybe what I thought my strength was, was sometimes my weakness, you know, that, you know, I can work for other people. I can get the job done. Um, but to take a risk and, and say, no, no, I'm going to be there over this next climb and I'm going to be there in the final and actually do a more important job, but there's a chance I won't make it, hmm. you know, there's a chance I don't get over that climb and then I've done nothing. And that was hard for me. So I'd prefer to 
get in early and 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 get a, a load of work done and and but then maybe I was selling myself short so is it fair to say that as you matured into your career you were more like was that risk that you just talked about the idea of putting yourself out there and for the chance of not getting anything yeah were you more as you grew older and more experienced in the peloton was that something that you freely came to you you're like okay now i'm you know i'm a stalwart here yeah i know what i know what i'm good at but i do feel like i want to flex and try my potential yeah a different way or was it or was it the the ds is coming to you saying actually this is what we need from you um yeah i mean i think moving teams from Rabobank, i'd really got into a you know a pretty a groove of just they were content with me i was content with them you know there was never any issue about it was a very safe team yeah. um but there was no real pushing my boundaries and and that's where sky came in and, and sky was you know great for me as a rider to reinvent myself and that was the allure for you uh because i would imagine that would have been a very challenging decision yeah because you've spent 10 years more yeah in the one environment yep you, both parties are mutually happy yep um and sky had just started yeah and no it was a bit of a risk and that's out of my comfort zone for sure i'm somebody who's doesn't doesn't play the risk card very often i'm, yep. I'm somebody who's plays pretty straight down the line um so was it something that was coming in from inside of you going yeah i think after 10 years on any on any one team people will realize that yeah sometimes you need a bit of a change but i, I guess the big thing was when they were talking about um you know bringing the science back and mm. and really but probably that was you back in canberra exactly yeah. and it was a real full circle you know and, and when you leave for europe you find that cycling is a real traditional sport um so you know you rock up and and things are just done the way they've always been done. Yeah. Um, you know, we've still got stories of, you know, we know now, I think I was talking to you the other day at the pool about how important the nutrition is and, and, and the amount of um, carbohydrates that, that guys are able to consume now during races. You know, when, when I first went to Europe, there were professional riders in France that would bring cordial to the race to add to their own bottles. Otherwise, they got water, you yeah. know. So we're talking about a little bit of sugar in a bottle of, you know, so even just uh, the food that was given to us was just the, the cakes that had always been made at the local bakery. Yeah. Um, and it always it always has happened that way, so it always will happen. Yeah, and and you know, you eat a steak and eat pasta, and and that's it. And nobody really pushed those. No one really questioned it. So, um, and I did feel like you know that that back in Canberra, I had access to more. Uh, to better data, mm. to, to to more scientific um, training methods. Um, and then, yeah, so Sky really brought that back and they were going to look at uh, almost reinvent the wheel. And, and you know, we, uh, we had to backtrack on a lot of things as well. You know, there was a, you know, you go and, and, and try and do something totally radical and and then find out actually there was a reason that people did it the other way. There was, you know, hundreds of years of yeah. experience to say, well, that's how you do do it. Um, but it's that process of... Yeah, but it was. It was everything was questioned and you could go back and then you knew 100% that's, that right. that's why we're going to do it. But yeah, I, I also tell the story of at Sky that, you know, um, just the fact that we believed that we were getting the best of everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know we'd go to a race and we'd have a one and a half litre bottle of water next to our um, next to our seat on the way to the race and it was called the hydration strategy. It was a bottle of water with some pineapple juice, you know, so, but nobody called it a bottle of water with pineapple no, juice. No, sure. It was, our, it was the best hydration the, strategy. pre-race hydration strategy for Team Sky. Yeah. Okay? So, and you started to believe believe the hype and, and that's about culture and building, building a high performance culture yeah. um, where you believe that you've got the best and you believe people are out there finding you're not questioning, you're not, you know, doing it yourself. You, you believe the team's got your back. So then you move to, from Sky, what drove the, the move? I imagine that was a one contract agreement. Two, actually. I think uh, I missed the first two years of uh, Green Edge. Um, when the Green Edge was starting, you know, there was talks about, about moving across straight away. Okay. I think Simon Gerrans did. Yep. 
um, and we both went to, to Sky when Sky started. Um, I just felt at the time that, you know, I was really, you know, reinventing myself as a rider. I was back in the front of races. Um, I'd put a lot of effort in, in one and a half, two years um, by the time the contract had finished into developing this new team, being a part of it, being a leader in it. Mm. Um, and then to go and join another new team and have to go through that whole process too of, of, you know, feeling out the staff, feeling out the other riders, culture. finding the hierarchy, what, what is the culture? And I felt, you know, I had the equipment, I had the, the support. Mm. Um, but then that following two years, you know, I do remember distinctly being in, in Paris-Roubaix and I think Tom Boonen rode away and we had four or five guys in the second group. And again, I jumped on the front to chase and yeah, look, it was just like, okay, there's too many, too many, um, chefs in the kitchen and chefs. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it was like, okay, there's an opportunity at Green Edge one to, I've seen it here. They've had two years of, to get rid of the teething problems. Um, and I'm actually ready to, to have a, a little bit less competition and be able to just focus on my own results and, and, and leading where I need to lead as a, as a road captain and, and lead as a rider um, in some of the classics and, and it was a good fit at that time. Is there a sense of, has there been a sense in your career about like um, that uh, juxtaposition of doing what's best for the team, mm. but if that's at my expense, then my value as a rider mm. isn't going to be as high as it could be and therefore my the risk of, like if you stayed at Rubber Bank, mm. does your future play out the way that it did? Or because of those decisions that you've made that you're able to basically step up and step up and step up the responsibility to be team road captain, yeah. to be a leader in the classics. Yeah, I needed a change. I don't think I would have grown anymore at Rubberbank. Yep. I mean, the team the team went through a lot of change after I left. Um, yeah, look, road captain and there, there was a lot of times that early on in my career that I had the option and it was like, I can be one of the better domestiques, road captains, highly dependable. That's something that is in my uh, character. Um, that's what I like to be and just put my efforts into that. Mm. Or I can play, I can gamble a bit and and say, and, and think, okay, I can win stages of Tour de France and I'm going to, you know, just try and snake my way through and try. And I'd seen other riders, other young riders around my period who, you know, didn't do the job properly, didn't get the feedback that they were, that they were performing the team role mm-hmm. and, and they fell by the wayside. So I was, yeah, I made a decision early on and, and it got reevaluated when I went to Sky. It was probably the first time they really called me road captain and really gave it a name at, at Rabobank. It was still a lot of older riders around when I was there. Um, so it was more just a worker. And then eventually grew into that road captain role. And then, yeah, at, uh, at Green Edge, it was mainly road captain every now and again later as well. And I want to touch on Roubaix, obviously. And, um, but going into that Green Edge contract or that stint, mm-hmm. in your mind, what did success look for you? Are you looking at each year going, well, this year I... I want to achieve this, this, and this yeah. in my cycling. Well, so the two th- two reasons of joining the team um, were to ride the Tour de France. So that was that was one of the other big reasons. Just looking at uh, Sky, I think maybe my second year at Sky, I was on the long list. Um, pretty sure I was going to go. Um, was told all about team's time trial training and pre-camp before we went into the Tour. And then I had a crash into Switzerland Probably broke a couple of ribs, but didn't really want to say anything because I knew it jeopardized my selection. Um, so I was riding around Switzerland, kind of holding my stomach and coughing for, for most of a week. Um, and yeah, didn't didn't hear anything else, which was which was hard to take, not even a phone call to say, you're no longer on the list because you're a bit injured. Um, and then, yeah, the, I think the following year just wasn't even in the picture. And I and I, and I had that at Rabobank too. I was never really in the picture for the Tour de France. I was more of a domestique classics rider. And and look, I'm, I'm now 15 years into my career. Um, felt like I had a certain level in the peloton, yet I hadn't ridden the Tour de France. 
Um, so some of my, my talks with Matt White about moving across to Green Edge involved, you know, what I could do at the classics yep. and riding the tour to helping it to Yeah. Um, and in, uh, 2014, my first year on the team, I, I got that call up straight away. Um, we started in England and yeah, probably had one of the lowest experiences in my life. I didn't get to Paris in my first tour after 15 years, uh, of waiting, um, I think stage nine or 10, just before the first rest day, um, yeah, just, just totally empty and got dropped in the mountains, a pretty, pretty severe day. I think we finished on Plage de Belfise and, um, OTL'd. Hey? OTL'd. Yeah. Well, actually. What did you jump in the car? I got off and it was a really, really hard day. Um, the day before I knew I was in trouble. And I thought, I just get through this stage and I've got a rest day and, and you never know, you always have a bad day in a Grand Tour. And I was dropped straight away. And then even I think Alberto Contador crashed at one point and I think he broke his leg and he had a few teammates wait for, with him for ages until he, he restarted and then got put in an ambulance. And those guys even caught me and rode past me and I couldn't even hold on to them. And yeah, I'm getting time checks and saying, look, I think I was almost outside the time limit before I started and... And it happened, yeah, before I started the final climb, probably had 15K to go and I was already 25 or 35 yeah, yeah. behind. Um, and it happened in a split second and, and I do regret it. Um, I couldn't, I just, the thought of riding up that hill and everybody waiting around for this guy so the race could finally be over and, and. You're by yourself. Yeah, possible. I had been for four hours, five hours. Uh, it was raining and cold. Uh, I had a team car with me. Um, and. Yeah, just in a split second, the foot clicked out and the, before I knew it, I was sitting in the car and, and I did want to turn it back and I did regret getting off. Um, but yeah, just, I don't know what, what made me do it. Um, but giving up, that was not something I did lightly ever. I really felt like, and sometimes again, not, not always the best attitude. There was probably plenty of times that I should have just gone home and recovered and I could have been better for it. But I always just felt like if I stop, if I DNF a race, that it'll become easy. Uh, if you, if you get into the habit of doing that, it'll yeah. just be able to get off anywhere. Things aren't going your way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up, um, out of the tour and the moment I sat in the car, I, yeah, I regretted it. Um, but I was also Look, there were, in reality, later I had some blood tests and I, and I wasn't healthy, but at the time that, that doesn't play a part. All you know is you failed and mm. first attempt at the Tour de France. So. Where were you mentally after that? Yeah, really low. Um, you know, I'd moved to the team to, to do that. The classics hadn't been great. They'd been okay. And then I'd, you know, failed at the Tour. Um, it took a long time. That's probably the hardest, hardest day I've had on a bike ever. Um, getting off at the Tour de France, I was, I was a bit of a mess for a while. Um, yeah, I can't actually remember, um, how I bounced back, back from that one. <laughs> There's so many, uh, you know, over a 19 year career that, that there was so many times you had to bounce back from injury or disappointment. Um, you end up becoming a bit of a goldfish where you just try to forget things as quickly as possible and move on. Do you have a, did you, at that time, did you have a support group around yeah look i think i mean i was talking the other night uh here locally for some to the mountain bike team and and i think it's really important even at a professional level in a professional team and i say to the young riders now that you've got to build your own support network whether that's your mum your dad your wife at the time for me it was my wife and my family um coaches physios but but you can't rely on a team to, to be all those things for you. Mm. Um, you know, there's individual sports where it's imperative to build that, that network because there's at, at the highest level, there's no one person can, can take all of that on. Um, so you definitely need a support network. Um, yeah. So yeah, a lot of time with my wife and, and, and she's a pretty good listener. And what year was that that you pulled out? 14. 14. Yeah. So then you went back to the tour. Yeah, well, so 15, um, I wasn't at the tour, but I did do the Walter. And it was one of the, you know, when I look back on my career and I highlight, you know, some of the best times I had. Um, and it's funny because I do always, they always seem to be connected with wins. You know, there's no times that I say, 
oh, geez, that was a great race that we, we just lost. So we got battered, you know, but I remember having fun with the boys. Yeah. No, every time I look back and go, oh, that was a really cool trip. We went to um, Quebec and Montreal and we won both races with Simon Gerrans and the race before we won with, with Daryl Impey and, you know, we won everything. That was awesome. We were on it and we were pulling as a team and it was a group effort. Um, yeah. And the 2015 Volta was one of those. So we, we won stages there. We held the red jersey for a number of days with Esteban Chavez. And we had a young Caleb Ewan there who, who uh, by his own admission, was finished one day in the bunch and actually won the day. So he was he was dropped every day. He was struggling. But uh, we had an uphill sprint one day and, and he ripped it. And uh, uh, and he won, won a stage, his first Grand Tour stage win. So... We had a mixture of older riders and younger guys and there was a real cohesion and we were really just getting the job done and everybody was just filling in gaps for each other and it was, yeah. So that was 15 and, and that, that you know, race at the end of the year, I think, uh, along with another other, several other events contributed to to the Roubaix win at, in the start of 16. So for a bit of context, you going into 2016, obviously Roubaix, why is it for you that Roubaix is, I mean, even before yeah. 2016, you obviously have this affiliation with it. Yeah. I have my idea, yeah. <laughs> my my suspicions, but I want to know for you why that race. Probably first started at Rabobank and went to that race. And there, there's always a few of the bigger riders who don't, you know, the riders that might be at Flanders um, who are not real keen on Roubaix. They, they see the danger and they see, they don't think it's a race for them. So there was always a few extra spots. What you know at Rabobank, I wasn't getting a start in Flanders, where where Michael Bogarts and you and Eric Deckers had come in. But then by the time we got to Roubaix, there was a few spots. So I, I raced it almost all my career, seventeen times. Um, and I remember the the mechanics and the Swannies the first time we were we were at Roubaix, and they're like, "Oh, this race is going to suit you. You're going to be you're going to be great here, and you know it's really up your alley." And um. I remember getting to finish and just thinking, I don't know what they're talking about. This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, so for context of people who don't know, that's it's a one of the biggest races in cycling each year. Yeah, from around Paris to Roubaix yep. in France. Um, what is what differentiates it is that it's flat. Yep, and it's also got uh, a heap of cobblestone sections, yep. which are notoriously very dangerous. Yeah, very difficult to ride, I imagine, um, but dangerous for crashing. Yeah, punctures, bike. Yeah, changes. it's a bit of chaos, really. And so my thought was going into talking to you about it is that Roubaix, A, the cobblestone, scientifically, the bigger men yeah. suit. It suits yeah, no, 100%. You know, you don't need to be 50 kilos. No. In fact, it's against you. Yeah, the power to weight ratio and just the, the, the way you kind of can handle the, the, the stones. It's so unpredictable. So yeah. you you need to be at the right place at the right time and anything can happen. Yeah. You could be the best, you could be the odds on favorite. Yeah. And, uh, that you may not even finish. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a hard one. So every few years it will throw up a podium of guys or there'll be one or two guys on the podium and you say, wow, he would never really podium in a monument. It's not, not a rider that you think of, yeah. but then you'll see their, their palmes, their results and go, well, Actually, he's a pretty strong guy. You know, nobody kind of gets there without before or after in their career. You'll work out. Oh, actually, the guys, the guys got some some horsepower. Um, so that's what kind of lures a lot of guys into. Well, there is a chance where where were your Flanders or your Milan San Remo's? Are these other big one day races? There's less of a chance. It's a bit more scripted. Mm -hmm. And every now and again, it just it just says, well, if I have my day, who knows? You know, so it just keeps everybody a little bit. But that being said, if you go and look back at Tom Boonen, who, you know, who I beat, but he was going for his record fifth, his results in Roubaix are just exactly. phenomenal. So you talk about the chance so of crashing consistent. and he is consistent, top 10 all the time. So it isn't... Same with Castellara. Yeah. So uh, again, they might have one one or two bad results, but ultimately they're always there. So it does also show that, that the cream does rise mm -hmm. and, and those guys are there, but it just leaves that door open just a little bit for where you're anything not gonna, to happen. Well, you're not going to find that in a, uh, as you say, in a, in a San Remo or, or Flanders. Or, yeah. We don't like, really find guys just popping, Unless you're pushing on the podium. Hey, what's a kilo up a hill? Yeah. You're not going to be in it. No. So. Yeah. So. Um, and as a spectator, that's like, that's what Roubaix is awesome about as well, is that it's like, you're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. 
anything can happen and and yeah and and you know i i've always used a quote after that to always keep riding was was something i said after the race and and it actually comes from from mark walters who um was my belgian teammate at, at roubaix one uh, wore the yellow jersey in the tour de france and and he was passionate passionate about roubaix and he never never got to win it i don't even, he didn't even get on the podium and i've through my career across teams whether it's been luke durbridge uh, mitch docker whether it's uh, Leon von Bonn back at Rabobank, the guys at Sky, Ian Stannard and, and, and Fletcher. All these guys, that race was something special and it really gets under your skin. And I, and I can pick them out in the bunch. There's a bunch of Frenchies and, and it's just like, this is this is the day. You know, I'm happy to work for anybody else for the rest of the year. But on this one day, I want to, I just want to go into battle and, and see how far I can go. Always keep riding. How have you used that in life generally? Yeah, it's probably one of my, my traits that's got me so far in the sport and, and resilience and persistence. You know, I'm not the most talented bike rider. You know, I have a certain amount of talent and that's how I got to professionals. Um, but by working hard and, and bouncing back and, and just getting on with the job, I think um, resilience can get you a long way. And I think, you know, the story of, of my win is, is about that persistence and resilience. So 2016 comes, obviously, the... Paris-Roubaix on the list of races that you're going to do. Yep. You uh, break your arm. Yep. About what, eight weeks? Uh, six six weeks, I think it was. Six weeks, you break your arm. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a what compound fracture or anything. Or anything. No, it was but in, you're a in a cast. It was in a cast. It was you're back cast. home then on the trainer Yeah. going, well, I can, I can ride. I just can't ride. I have to be stationary. Yeah. And so you're punching out sessions upon sessions uh, on, the on the home trainer with yeah. the view of still wanting to be part of that spring classic yeah and that, um, with the view of being able to just make that one race uh, was it that, really that was enough that's the last race that was on my program of the spring classics and you know they said six weeks because you're on a contract right so you you don't need no i don't you could that. just sit on the couch and go oh, i'd wait yes, for anybody else would be take a holiday <laughs> you could have yeah I, I i i did get in touch with the team and said hey can i go to the Giro? you know um is that an option um i'm sitting here if i i'm now six weeks out and then after that my next thing on my program was a break mm. and a rebuild for the tour de france so i'm like well I've just trained all through Christmas and New Year yep. in Australia with my family, everybody else at barbecues, and I'm out doing six-hour rides. I've then left the family for three and a half weeks to go and do altitude in, in uh, South Africa. I've come in, I've gone from race to race preparing for this, and now there's a hole, and, mm. and next race will be June, and we're in we're in March. Um, and there really wasn't a spot in the Giro, and, and you know, we'll stick to your to your race program. So yeah, I would have got paid if I'd just taken it easy, waited for my arm to heal and mm. rebuild. Yeah. But I don't know. I just felt like all the work I'd done, all that hard work to get there. And I was actually moving. Okay. I was really feeling good in that was one of the opening classics where I, where I cracked. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, I don't really know. And for how level, like your actual, uh, what you're doing in training that year leading into the early 2016s, is that consistent with what you had been doing in 2015? There's no, there was no massive change in your ability for you to give you a change of mindset of going, oh, I need to get to that race because I truly believe I can do something. No, no. I mean, there were other years I'd got to that race where I thought oh, I'm in really good shape and yep. this is the year I'm going to get a result. And 2011, I was in a position to get a result. So I'd not only got to that race as the last classic, yeah. I'd got through a lot of uh, a lot of the bike race, got myself into the right breakaway and put myself in a position to, to ride for a podium and, and I made some mistakes. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't really thinking about that at, and I don't know what I was thinking and, and it did. It oscillated between I'm an idiot for getting on the home trainer twice a day. Um, I remember standing around the kitchen just drenched in sweat after a second session, drinking a beer. Just asking my wife, what am I what doing? Am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? It's not thirty in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, no, in the evening. So I was doing doing double sessions. So yeah, I'm just joking. Hour and a half in the morning, hour and a half. But yeah, you know, like I was just like, this is this is a cast, mate. 
Yeah. It was. It yeah. was. It was off after a couple of weeks. Sure. Uh, and then that was actually a big disappointment because at the time I was started to get into knocking out these training sessions and I was pretty sure it wasn't too bad, you know, the break in my arm and, and I got the cast off and the, when it fell, like, you know, the first time I took my arm off the table without the cast on, I was like, oh, it, it was pretty sore. Mm. Um, and while it was in the cast, I was like, oh, I don't it's know if it's even broken. Yeah, you know? sure. Um, and then it went into a, uh, went into a brace um, and, you know, got bad for a couple of weeks there and then started to, to heal up and, and it wasn't until the first, and I stayed on the home trainer probably a week longer than I would have in the past. Uh, you know, I would have wanted to test it out and go for a ride on the road. If there was, if there was any part of your body that you'd want to be sure for, <laughs> to, uh, for Roubaix is, is your yeah. arms, right? Yeah. The, the amount of shock that those cobblestones are putting through. Yeah. So, well, yeah, but that first time I did go out on the road, I just... Uh, I hit a few bumps and, and it was more aching from just from, from the endurance, from being out and, and holding on, but it wasn't taking the shock. And, and that's where I thought, that's when I finally went, well, maybe, you know, it's not, it's not jarring. It, it gets sore and it's, it's ache by the time I get to the evening, but it's not jarring from any movement, you know? So, you know, we've still had a couple of weeks, maybe. I think I probably did one and a half, two weeks on the road. I definitely stayed on the trainer just because the reports I was getting from my coach was, look, you are, your fitness and, and, and as a rider, I mean, I was 37 years old, all I was doing was intensity and, and that was something that I would, as an athlete would, that's the hard part of training, the intensity. Yeah. So I was probably needed that, you know, I needed a bit of rest and I needed a bit of intensity and I'd had, you know, look, I had, uh, 17 years of you know, um, experience Base. behind me. Yeah. Uh, I had all that, uh, and the race knowledge, mm. um, and that intensity when it was especially about a perfect storm. And then you get, so then you get the call out or you get, you just make the squad, right? You have to Yeah. They didn't really want to take me. Yeah. Um, I asked about doing a race a week before and they said, oh, your bikes aren't even in Belgium. They're back in Italy. And eventually I convinced them to let me go to Spain, um, where they said, look, the, the roads will be good in Spain. And if you can ride this race the weekend before Roubaix, so that was about five, five and a half weeks after the crash. If you can ride one of these races on the road, we'll, we'll consider you for Roubaix. Um, I went there and did some really good numbers, tried to get in the breakaway road on the front. I think Michael Matthews won on the second day. Um, yeah. And you know, that, that coincided with, with Flanders, um, and they said, all right, we can come and try the recon on Wednesday. So they still weren't sure, mm. you know, so they brought me to, to the recon and we went and rode a bunch of the cobbles on the Wednesday. Um, and yeah, I was sure, you know, even in that ride, the guys had come from all the other racing. They were all pretty tired and pretty busted. They were all, you know, it'd been a long season for them already. And I was bursting out of my skin to, to get going. Um, and I remember they were doing some riding behind the motorbikes to try and get some speed work in and and i was just sitting off the back in the wind getting a really hard day in and i felt the legs were just really good yeah but i still i was just happy to be there there was no ambition to win i'd in the other years i'd i'd gone there with the ambition to get a result mm. um and this year was that was not on the cards i find that so interesting that after you know what it was that was your 15th attempt yeah and it's probably the first time where well, so I wasn't chasing it. Yeah, you weren't. <laughs> oh, like, I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. And what'll be will be. Yeah. And your form's obviously very good. Yeah. Your mindset is I'm just stoked to be part of this. Yeah. And it, we'll just see how. Yeah, just everything. Like the bike I chose, the wheels I chose were just my normal bike. I was normally into the details of. You know, I was in the one that pumped my own tires because I wanted them exactly at the right pressure. The right BSI. And now I was just like, oh, whatever, put them in, guys. I don't know. I haven't been around for for a month or so. You guys, you know, the wheels are a bit bigger, maybe a bit lower, a bit higher. Um, you know, I'd normally be going over the course or something. I remember watching a couple of movies with my roommate instead of really worrying about the race. So the whole lead-in was just a lot more, you know, I wasn't building it up. Mm. I was just, you know, okay, I'll get there. Even the team meeting, it's a bit like I'm carte blanche. I'll just, you know, do whatever, you know, I'll see I'm old enough to know when, 
if if I can feel the wheels are falling off and I've got no more legs, I'll jump in and try and help a teammate. Or if um, you know, really just an open role that's really unknown value. Um, where other years it'd be, okay, you're going to try this or you're going to do that. Um, so everything was just really relaxed on the way in. And I don't think I could have created that in situation any other way. It was no. through those circumstances, you know, it couldn't tell me another year. Oh, just relax. Just relax. Yeah. <laughs> just watch a movie. Yeah. You'll be fine. You, yeah. Don't worry about your bike and don't, because that's, that's how I operated and that's, was the steps I was taking as I was trying to get a result. But it was just that perfect in recipe. Yeah of yeah. good form and relaxed, yeah. forced relaxed nature of it all. Yeah. And then into the race, like at what point, if did it at all change of going, actually, this is, this, this could be mine if I want it. Oh, very, very late. <laughs> so you were going with the flow yeah. the entire time, maybe what, with only a few Ks to go. Even in the last, in the final, probably thinking, oh, look, I don't want to finish fourth. I want to be on that podium. Yes. There's two, two guys are going to miss out here. Yeah. No, five. Um, but yeah, at the start of the race, uh, again, just cruising along, sun shining, you know, meeting all the guys I hadn't seen for months. Uh, oh, you're back, you know? Um, and then, yeah, it was kicking off and, uh, I jumped into a breakaway and, and again, just that serendipitous that, that happened. And, I was in a breakaway of 20, 21 or 22 guys. Um, we never got much. And and the experience of, of 2011 where where I really did push it and, and try, I just was like, oh, look, I'm out here. I don't know how my form is. Most likely I've missed some endurance. So even though I've got good legs now, they're bound to fall off. It's a 270K race. Yeah, I've been doing an hour and a half on a home trainer. <laughs> that doesn't add up. Um, so just cruise along. My teammate told me he, because he'd been jumping for that first 70 or 80 K before the break went, he said, Oh, I'm not feeling any good. I was like, all right, no worries. I'll just cruise along. So you hadn't jumped at all. I just jumped twice. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The guys, uh, Durbo talks about it. He's just like, I was on the radio. Oh, I'll bring the car up. I'll give him my arm warmers and jacket. And then I just, boom, got in it. So I was fresh, fresh in that group. Yeah. But yeah, just thinking, okay, um, Jens or, or Durbo or Luke, they'll come across mm. maybe later and I'll be here. This this gets me through Arenberg. There's one particular section that's really bad, often have crashes or, or punches. Thought oh, I'll get a free ride through there, be in front of the game. And when they come, I'll see how far I can go. And then finally, Durbo did come across with some of the, some of the favorites um, and he caught me. Uh, probably with about 80 or 90 kilometers to go. And uh, he jumped in. He's oh, how you going? I was oh, yeah, I'm pretty good. And the next sector we went on to, I heard pss, 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 And then uh, our race radio went, oh, I've got a flat, I've got a flat. And there wasn't much I could do for him. So then I was, you know, alone again. I was the only one from our team in the, in the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd only been with me for a few K. So had that not happened, I would have oh, 100% committed to Luke. Um but uh, so now I was just like, all right, well, I'm the only one here. These are all the favourites. These big guys, um, they're all here to win. And yeah, there was one sector where I, I did feel like oh, I can just sit here, or, or um, they were starting to move. Some of the really good riders were starting to move, and I did have a mental moment there that I said, oh, go now and just see. It's better to die trying than than wait. And I moved then went across and when we exited that sector there was there was five of us left and they were the five that went into the velodrome now guys came back and a lot of racing happened after that but if i look back that was that was the critical point that was when i said you know oh actually you're moving okay and 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 i started that mindset of go after it take some risk Risk. because that's obviously somewhat against um your character yeah in the preceding decade yeah of no, no, and and there's something that I worked with Steve Peters about, um, who talks about taking risks, and and taking risks doesn't mean just you know going underneath somebody in a corner or doing something dangerous. No, sure. Taking risk is doing that thing that you always do, which gives you the result that you don't want, but you feel comfortable with. You know, taking risks is getting out of your comfort zone, doing that thing that 
if you sat down and you and, and for everybody it's different you know for me it was was over committing to teammates and 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 not you know backing myself in the final so um so yeah that that was like go after it you know see if I can get across what's the worst that can happen is I don't make it and I go back to the group I was in no I don't die wondering um so yeah and then and again the same thing kind of happened in the last 15k we were down to the final five riders and and Ian came underneath me in a corner and I got dropped from the front group and that was again a moment that I just thought ah this is what <laughs> this is my lot this is what I deserve, you know, this is, interesting. yeah, this is the standard for me, you know, I've I had a crash before in the final a couple of times, you know, I get, get close and, you know, well, that's the story. Yeah, it's the story. That's my story. And, um, I remember kind of getting going and think, well, I don't have to settle for that story. Again, I can go now and die trying or give up. And I just, you know, pretty much left, right, left, right, <laughs> just, just see Let's see. Yeah. Um, I've got nothing to lose. But what was the gap at that point? Oh. 20 metres. Oh, probably a bit more. Maybe 50, uh, 50 to 100 metres. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so I just... To the four. Yeah, well, uh, Sepp had just attacked. So oh, yeah. So it was three and one. There was three and one. Yeah. And um, yeah, I probably... I think I was totally out of the vision of the television and uh, I might have got a little bit of a run off the motorbike onto the back of them. Uh, sure. But... Yeah, and that was, again, for me, this is where we're talking about 10K to go now, not 50K to go. And that was like, well, if the legs haven't run out now, who knows? Now we're really, you know, this is the last sector. Um, and, yeah, somewhere I started to really get into the flow of, you know, these guys want it more than me. They all have to win. I'm the I'm the guy who's been in the breakaway all day. I'm, I'm the least one that they expect and... And don't get, don't get fourth. That was pretty much what I want to get on that podium in, in that velodrome. The velodrome meant so much to me, you know, that race meant so much. And I thought 2011, I, I made mistakes and I don't want to get fourth. Not maybe the best mindset, but that being said, I mean, I, I went into the final kilometre with, with one other guy and I didn't commit to getting second, you know, and that could have been so somewhere deep down. I was still going after the win mm. because I could have easily just given him a couple of turns and he won, I go second. And, yeah. Guaranteed second. Yeah, I would have been guaranteed a podium. But at that point, yeah, we even, you know, we both pokered with each other and, and everyone came back and it was a five-up sprint. So somewhere deep down there was there was that. that uh, and I think I've always had that when a road captain or now as a director, I ride for the win, you know. I... I don't like losing um so yeah even though there was that self-talk of don't get fourth there was still something something deep down going after the win well that's almost like your inner critic versus your inner fan right you're in a critic going don't be shit don't yeah you've got this opportunity to get on the podium yeah and you're in a fan going you're better than that yeah you've got to be able to and that's and i think that's interesting that dialogue of uh what you know in the in the moment of yeah that, of those last 10k and you talk about the, the 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 help or the inadvertent help from the moto you've you've got to still make that decision to yeah. to go back yeah if you absolutely. if you say this is just my lot yeah this is this is the matt Heyman story of all no, there was there was a definite you yeah. don't get you don't get that opportunity yeah. right to that, that I guess I'm trying to look, extrapolate this to life, right? You, you're in it. You're in the arena and go, no, I'm playing here. Yeah. You open your opportunity to the motos of our life. Yeah. To maybe it's a, maybe that helps five seconds yeah. to bridge. You're still going to bridge 25. Yeah. 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 But it helps five. hundred percent. And uh, put yourself in the game. Yeah. And allow that to, that, that, that positivity or that opportunity to transpire. Cause if you're not there, no, you're not, you're not getting any of it. No, hundred percent. Um, and, and, and all of those, those mini conversations that you're having with yourself and, you know, I look back that whole day was a culmination of my whole career. I mean, there's all aspects of working with a sports psych when I was 17 years old and working with a sports psych when I was at Sky. Um, there's riding on a velodrome when I was a 12 year old in Canberra, you know, there's, 
it's all experience and and how you handle those experiences even even the fact of why i was on a home trainer mm. you know how can you do that as a you know because that was my identity at the time what have i done that as an as a 21 year old um but yeah so just being able to get over injuries, being able to use all those experiences. Uh, it's just the experience that you had to, to get to that point and have and it all come together. Talk me through the mindset in the final lap. Yeah, well... So you've gone you've gone with the favourite, with Tom Boonen, yeah. in the last couple of kilometres, swapping turns. Yeah. And then at some point you were like, no, nah. I'm, not, I'm not working. Yeah, anymore. I don't even know. Look, really, and, and I don't want to get too far into the sports psych of, of it, but, um, no, it was, it was a bit more of a, I was definitely in the flow there. That was, that was, it doesn't feel like me. I didn't race the last 10 k yeah. which is sometimes disappointing because it felt like somebody else. I was on autopilot and that's the place you, that's what athletes call the flow. Sure. And that's the place you want to get, but it's a bit unrewarding because you don't feel like it's making the you. decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I was riding how I would tell somebody else to ride or how I know that you need to ride or. Um, so yeah, I wasn't, which is a great thing. I wasn't making a lot of decisions. I was just doing Yeah. when you're making a lot of decisions, you're not actually in the moment. You're not in the flow. So yeah, I did. I shook my head at Tom. I can't tell you why. <laughs> um, I said, no, nah. and I don't know why I went up the bank. I don't know why I hit out. I don't know what gear I was in. Um, and I went across the finish line and I remember throwing my arms up. I've just won, you know, the biggest race in my life and, and something will go down in history. And first thought was I felt a bit self-conscious, like I hope nobody else is in front or I just felt a bit out of body experience. So, um, yeah, it all came together for me on that day. And, and you are overgeared by the way, <laughs> most probably. <laughs> um, no, that's yeah. It, yeah. It's amazing. And I think the adage of, you know, just keep writing. I think is a beautiful uh, lesson, not only obviously for that race and that experience for you, but just life in general. Yeah, no, you can't you can't give up. Oh, for sure, you can sulk and you have your moments, but you can't give up. And I think uh, you know, came back and rode the Tour de France after getting off in that same year, two thousand sixteen, and uh, just rode around just with that confidence, and and I got to Paris in the same year. So for me, 2016 was a was a pretty big year as a as a bike rider. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, to cover off on your career, then are you going back to Roubaix, wanting to emulate, or as a rider, or are you? How do you? How does the last couple of years of your career, given that 2016 was so special? Yeah. What do you, what, how does success, how did the success piece change, if at all, after that? Yeah. So I was a bit worried because I did feel like a bit of an imposter in that group of winners. You know, they're all the winners of Roubaix. Uh, you know, I mean, I do, I do have to mention the guy, you know, I took away, he was going to be a record holder, five, five wins, and, and I, I beat him just on the line. And he was the first guy to come up to me and say, Ah, congratulations! You know, he said it's going to change your life. You've you've always been a a good rider, an honest rider. You know, that's that's great for you. And for have somebody of his level to be able to just look me in the eye, shake my hand, and and mean it. I mean, he was there too. He he felt my attacks in the final, and he it's easier for him to accept being beaten when you're there. I know that people in his community and his team were felt a bit robbed, maybe. Um, so, but yeah, I felt like an imposter in that world of winners. And, and then, you know, I was worried about going to the next race. Like I knew damn well, I was going to get dropped in the next you know, <laughs> like, yes. and yeah. people are going to go and, and you know, the camera's going to be on me four days time when I'm getting dropped. Yep. Um, it's hard to lug that. Yeah. That trophy. That trophy is pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, pretty quickly, embraced it and it was uh, i remember in the tour de france actually we were in the mountain stage and uh we we're going up the mountain and the group of us were going off the back and i could hear the the motorbikes beside us and they've got the race radio on and it came across the race radio and they said uh oh, lache the the fruit de the peloton and uh group de Heyman. so now oh, it was your... it was my group <laughs> you know so i'm the roubaix winner yeah 
and I felt like, no, actually, if I was a 17 or an 18 or maybe a 22-year-old and it was my first tour to France. Damn straight, that's my group. Yeah, <laughs> and it'd be like, oh, I got dropped with Heyman on, on that climb, you know, like yeah. I kind of formed the, whatever group that was, the Gruppetto or whatever, but, you know, so, yeah, I got over that, I got over that imposter feeling pretty quick and, and rode with confidence, you know, like, well, that is... I am a Roubaix winner, and that's when a Roubaix winner gets dropped. Yeah, that that's fine. Be. And if it inspires a young guy to be able to say, well, he was never much better than me, mm. you know, that so be it, mm. you know. Um, so, yeah, the last few years of my career, I was, I really enjoyed. Mm. I was, you know, there was no, I wasn't chasing anything anymore. Not that I felt, you know, even without that win, I would have been, you know, I, I would have done it all again without the win for sure, you know. Um, that's not, that's not really why I was in the sport. It wasn't something that was missing. Um, from you as a person. No, yeah. no I don't think it changes yeah. much. It's nice and it's really not, you know, that race got under my skin. I'd still love it if I won it or didn't win it. And it's a really nice race to be associated with. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, you come home and nobody in my house really cares that I won Roubaix, I'll tell you that. Yeah, fair enough. All right, we'll wrap it up. Oh, I guess one last thing that I'd like to talk about is about you as a dad. You got yep. three kids. Yep. What What are you wanting to instill in them? Because they will, I imagine, they'll have only very fond memory. I mean, they'll have very little memory of dad racing. Yeah. There'll be a lot of YouTube clips, which I'm sure you got plastered all over the world. Well, yeah, my son, my eldest knows a little bit. He was actually there in the velodrome. Um, but the younger two, I've got twins that are six and, a and an older boy who's, uh, 12 and the younger two that, yeah, they don't even really know what oh, they, they, they do know, but, um, and, and the youngest boy, he's, he's madly on, on Zwift in, in the last few weeks, even just as a six year old. Solid. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, just, and, and it's been something that's come through, you know, my my family, my older brother, my younger brother, just yeah, just hard work. Hard work trumps most things. Um, and and to be able to find something that they're passionate about, you know, it doesn't feel like work if you if you enjoy it. Mm. Um, and I think that's what any parent would want. You know, what would you wish for your children that they're happy? They get up in the morning motivated to to do something. I think uh, what that is doesn't really matter. Beautiful. Um, all right. Number one tip for someone searching for success. Yeah, that go back to that one. Hard work. Hard work trumps most things. Sure, in in my field, you need a bit of talent. Um, but yeah, persistence and hard work. Okay. Uh, same question about searching for happiness. Don't hide it. You know, uh, it's all around. And if you're not, you know, you really got to, you know, don't search too far. Um, I think, you know, in the little things, be in the moment. Um, my wife's really good at that. Um, you know, she's not materialistic. She's not, she can just be happy with a sunrise, be happy with a, a walk on the beach, you know. Um, it doesn't have to be somewhere fancy or somewhere, you know. So, yeah, just the ability to, to find that happiness close by. Don't Don't put it in an expensive car that you have to work hours for, you know, I guess that's probably. Sure. Uh, must read book. I brought this one along. I haven't finished it yet. Um, this one legacy by James Kerr, which is about the all blacks. Oh, I've heard about this. Uh, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, it's got, um, the pillars of a good team in the, in, and actually the owner of our team, um, of Green Edge, uh, Jerry Ryan, who I can't speak highly enough of. He's a businessman from Melbourne. He's the, started Jayco Caravans along with this, you know, supported a number of cycling teams, football teams, basketball teams. Um, and uh, he's a entrepreneur, philanthropist, and just an amazing man. And he gave everybody this book in, in January. And you know, he's invested a lot in this team and, and he's always talked to us about people and culture. Mm. He's talked about, you know, you get the right paper and you build the right culture and you'll be successful. So 
when he gave us this book and and how the All Blacks go about um, their business and and you know there's a lot of good takeaways for for building good culture and now that I'm a director on the team it's part of the job is doing the race tactics but also um, just trying to culture. yeah trying to steer the ship when you can mm, awesome uh, most inspirational person in your life this is a hard one um, I don't really have um, I really tried to take different aspects of, of athletes I was around as far as my um, professional life went. But yeah, I think I looked up to my older brother a lot. I think the way he went, he never turned professional, but his, uh, he was meticulous and went into a lot of detail around and just loves bikes, you know. Um, he would work on his bike, clean his bike. Uh, I never had the patience or the time. He'd do my bike as well. Um, yeah, and I, and in some ways he lived his career through me, um, that, yeah, he didn't quite make it, but for sure he was more passionate and worked harder than I did. So, um, yeah, it was good having someone there leading the way for me that was just that much more professional, um, setting the start. So probably at the right time for you. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And finally, one guest, famous or not, you would like to see in the interview. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this one, and, and I don't know if it down the, the sports line, but um, in recent times it's come to head in the in the cycling world. Adam Hansen, I'm not sure if you've heard of Adam Hansen. Um, I just think you you wouldn't be able to fill um, Adam's story in, in one or two podcasts or three or four. He's got so many different hats and just an amazing... Yeah, entrepreneur, um, computer programmer, professional athlete, been mountain biker, businessman. Now he's heading up the cycling union. Um, has different ways of looking at things. Is often before his time, and yeah, I think he's definitely not. You know, I'm I'm not that style. But to sit down and the few chances I've had to speak to him, um, yeah, willing to look at any anything from a different direction and i don't know how he he doesn't sleep that's what i've heard so he gets by on even in a grand tour i mean he's got the record for riding back-to-back grand tours um but even that you know he set it up uh, as a part of his life he said well all i do is three grand tours a year which is 21 days of racing in each tour um it reduces my travel days because i'm only doing like four races a year where everybody else does you know 40 Mm. um but yeah, just, you know, that's the way, that's the way he processes things. He's just, uh, yeah, amazing kind of guy. So I yeah. think he's just so many different, whether he, he works with carbon fiber because he wanted to make his own shoes. Yeah. He's a computer programmer. He's, he's everything. He knows heaps about nutrition. He was, he was ahead of his time in nutrition as well. Yeah. Just to tap into that yeah. mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We'll put it on the list. Matt Heyman, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Good luck with the uh, DS role and over the Tour de France. Thank you very much. And also in your new role and as capacity as the Australian head coach. Thank you. For the Olympics. Yep. Cheers. Cheers, mate. No worries. And that was Matt Heyman. I'm so privileged to be able to sit down with him for that long and talk about his life and the lessons that he was able to take away. The biggest one, obviously, is keep on riding. And I think life can throw you however many curveballs that it wants to. And it's our ability to uh, stay the course and stay on the bike, essentially, to see what is possible and see what success can ensue. Because if we're not on the bike, if we're not getting back onto it and getting back to what we are good at, then we won't know what our true potential looks like. So thank you very much for listening. Any questions, please drop it down in comments. Direct message me, just make some noise. I encourage everyone to share this podcast to the people that you think would get some value from it and hopefully you did as well. So until next time.